When you visit the Basque country of Spain and France, make sure you get to take in one of their unusual local sporting competitions, like rock lifting. So Basque farmers, in order to farm, needed to lift these big, heavy rocks. And this sort of evolved slowly over the period of about 100 years into an actual sport. Travel writer Dave Seminar tells us about the surprising things he found on a holiday in the Basque country. Prague is a real jewel box of a city. Its classic and modern art and architecture give the city's streets a real sense of personality. It's very irreverent and sometimes subversive, and I think that lends itself to a fun sense of style in the Czech Republic. We'll hear how Czech creativity flourished underground in response to communist censorship and how that spirit makes Prague a real gem to explore today. That time it is even hard to imagine maybe for people who never went through such a period. And listeners tell us what they want to see and do in Europe on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Stick around. It's hands down one of the most photogenic cities in the heart of Europe. Thankfully, the Baroque flourishes, Art Nouveau style, and modern architecture of Prague all survived the 20th century intact. In just a bit on today's Travel with Rick Steves, we'll explore the creative influences that make the Czech capital such a charming, historically interesting, and fun place to visit. We'll also open the phones to check in with listeners later in the hour to share travel tips and hear how your plans for a European getaway are taking shape. First, travel writer Dave Seminar is here to tell us about the one-of-a-kind culture you find among the Basques in their corner of Spain and France. However, some Basque country traditions he's encountered go back centuries and require a little explaining for outsiders to understand. Dave writes about his Basque country surprises in his book called Bed, Breakfast, and Drunken Threats. He joins us now from his home base in Bend, Oregon. Dave, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me, Rick. So, Dave, tell us about your time in Basque Country. What did you do there, and why did you go? I've been to the Basque Country. I keep returning to the Basque Country over the years, Rick, because I really think it is one of the most evocative parts of Europe. It's a place where the culture is just so strong. I mean, I love doing non-traditional touristy things, backdoor sort of activities, the kind of stuff you've been writing about your whole career, stuff that isn't in the travel magazines. And the Basques sort of really excel in this. Mm. Non-traditional activities that really showcase their culture the food, the sports, the unique festivals. Mm. I mean, this is something that the Basques really excel on, and that's what keeps me coming back to the Basque region. So I mentioned you saw some sports then. Talk about some of the strongman sports you found in the countryside. So there's a, there's a whole group of Basque rural sports, and these are sports that developed not as initially as athletic endeavors, but as things that actual Basque farmers needed to do as part of their ordinary lifestyle. And the one that I got interested in was called stone lifting. Basque farms tended to be very rocky and filled with stones. So Basque farmers, in order to farm, needed to lift these big, heavy rocks. And this sort of evolved slowly over the period of about 100 years into an actual sport. And I heard about an unusual museum in a lovely little Basque village called Leitza, which is about an hour south of San Sebastian. It's technically in Navarra, outside the Basque country, but it's ethnically Basque where there's this super interesting museum and sculpture garden devoted to stone lifting. And I thought, that's a very peculiar thing, and I have to see it. Let's check this out. And the gentleman who founded this museum and sculpture garden, Mm -hmm. his name is Iñaki Perurena, and he's considered sort of the Michael Jordan of Basque stone lifting. This is the first gentleman to ever lift a stone of more than 300 kilos, which is almost 700 pounds, Rick. This guy's vision was he wanted to educate the whole world about what this Basque stone lifting was all about. So he bought this beautiful farm, which is up on this hill, 
and created these fantastic sculptures of stone lifting and different elements of Basque culture in a museum inside dedicated to this sport. And he himself will actually, he owns a butcher shop in the village, he and his family. And tourists who, who are willing to pay four euros and who are interested in this, he'll actually pick you up in the town and he drives you out to his farm. He just picks you up. And he gives you like a, a personal stone. tour. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He, <laughs> he's he throws you over his shoulder. He could. He's that burly, this guy. Carry me up to your farm. Okay. He's this the, burly, this guy. And is the stone chained with a stick on the top so you can get a grip on it? Or, or how do they lift the stone? The stones are actually cut into, nowadays, you know, 100 years ago, these would just be rocks that people would pick up off the ground that would be on a farm. Okay, but these are uniform manufactured Exactly. These are manufactured ones. Now, they do not have a handle on them. And there's different disciplines. Some of them are big round ones. Some of them are Mm -hmm. square. There's different sizes. And there's different disciplines. Some of them involve, you know, just lifting the heaviest one you can. Mm -hmm. In other cases, it's lifting it with one hand. In other cases, it's how many times can you lift this thing in a certain period of time. Like this gentleman, for example, once lifted a 212-pound stone 1,700 times in a period of nine hours. Jeez. When I was yes. in Basque Country, Dave, I was uh, impressed by this pelota game, and people were hitting the ball against just a wall in every town right. in the main square. You could sit there and have your coffee or your beer, and you could watch the, uh, the young guys uh, hitting the ball. This is the national sport of the Basque Country, and you can find this you know, in almost any town or village, you know, right on the main streets. I mean, for example, when you're in San Sebastian, right off of the main pedestrian drag there, 31 de Agosto, there is a pelota court there, and you'll see tournaments there all the time mm-hmm. involving, you know, not just children, but even sometimes uh, senior citizens and everybody. Pelota is really the, that is the Basque game. Travel writer Dave Seminar is sharing the surprises he found traveling in Spain's Basque country right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Dave writes about his overseas escapades and observations in his book, Bed, Breakfast, and Drunken Threats, Dispatches from the Margins of Europe. Dave also contributes to the BBC Travel Pioneers online series, and you'll often see his byline on travel articles in major publications. His website is daveseminara.com. Dave, you write about the Day of the Goose in a sport called goose pulling. Can you describe that to us and how it's faring in, in the modern age? Yes, I heard about this tradition, Rick, that happens every year on the 5th of September since at least the year 1666 in the Basque fishing village of Lequechio, which is a lovely town on the Bay of Biscay, let's say about an hour west of San Sebastian. But this Day of the Goose is it's part of a nine-day-long festival called the Festival of San Antolin. And it's a very peculiar festival in which basically people gather on wooden boats in the harbor and jump off of a boat onto a goose, which is hanging from a rope. And you've got 20 guys on the key pulling this rope up and down, sort of like a yo-yo, where you're catapulted up and down in the air like a yo-yo up to 100 feet in the air. And while you're being catapulted up and down like that, the person who's jumped off this boat, the goose jumper, the goal is to snap the neck of the goose off of the body of it. So you've got 20 guys on the key of the harbor, okay, pulling a rope through a pulley in order to basically yank you up and down while you're trying to, making it more difficult, basically, for you to try to snap the neck of this goose. And they're catapulting you up and down, in and out of the water, up to 100 feet in the air, five, six stories high. You're kidding. I've never heard it. No. Now, this has changed a lot over the years, though, Rick. Prior to 2005, they actually used live geese. 
And, you know, animal rights groups, for obvious reasons, not too happy about that. I was there in 2013, and by this point, they were using dead geese. But nowadays, they are giving people the option of either using an artificial goose or a real one. And in recent years, more and more people are choosing the artificial one. So you can break the neck of an artificial goose. That's correct. And these artificial geese were created specifically for this festival. <laughs> now that's uh, a souvenir and, I want to take home, an artificial goose from Laketia. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Dave Seminara. His book is Bed Breakfast and Drunken Threats. We're talking about Basque Country. And, and when I think of Basque Country, I think of these gastronomic clubs in San Sebastian. And it's a, a, an amazing tradition where the men, I guess that the woman rules the house. And, and the one domain for the men is they have these private clubs where they get together and they cook. How's that doing? Can, as a traveler, can you see that? And is it changing in modern times? Yes, you can see that. And yes, it is changing with modern times, Rick. As you point out, Basque women uh, rule the house, and Basque men have usually had these sort of refuges. These are considered refuges where men can go and sort of be men. But it's not all about machismo. What I found interesting in the club that I visited, I visited a club called Canoyetan, which is one of the oldest um, Basque gastronomical societies, and it's located it's hidden right in plain sight, right off of the main street in San Sebastian, the main pedestrian street, but you wouldn't even know that. You'd walk right by the place without knowing what was there. There's no televisions, for example, so guys aren't in there watching TV. You know, it's not like a sports bar. It's all about cooking and about food and about sharing recipes and sharing sort of camaraderie. Hmm. But they are changing. I mean, in this club, for example, that I had a chance to get to know people at, they used to not allow women to step foot in the door, period, not at all. And now they do allow women on certain nights of the week. I believe it's Friday nights women are allowed to come in as guests. They still cannot be members. But the one thing that they're never allowed to do is to enter the kitchen. Keep out of the kitchen. Wow. So the kitchen's sacred for the men only. Right. I want to point out also you asked, are these things available to tourists? Generally, these gastronomic societies are really only for locals, Rick. You kind of need an invite. However... There is one company called Eat San Sebastian, which I discovered. I did not go on their tour, but I discovered after visiting myself that they actually do a tour of a gastronomic society. Hmm. So they are opening up a little bit, but the woman who runs this um, Eat San Sebastian, she said it's extremely difficult because, you know, one week they'll let her and her tour group in, and then the next week they'll mm -hmm. say, you know what, someone complained last week. One of the guys didn't like the fact that there were women in the tour group, and we're not going to let you in. If you ask the owner of wherever you're staying, if they're a local Basque person, hey, I'd really like to get an inn at a gastronomic society. That's Can you, you help me? So this, the guy who ran the bed and breakfast we stayed at the last time we were in the Basque country, I said, hey, I really would like to visit one of these places. Can you help me? And he said, mm, probably not, but I'll ask around. And the next day, sure enough, he said, you know what? I talked to my wife and she plays violin with a woman whose husband is the president of Kana Yetan, and be there at 6 o'clock tonight. They're going to welcome you. And that's kind of how things work wow. sometimes. Wow, and how was your time there? It was fascinating because, first of all, they, they told us all about sort of their culture and the way that it works, all a complete honor system, Rick, which I love. They have a box in the kitchen where any of the male members, they each have their own key to the place. And you go in, you cook for yourself, and you, you're supposed to check the boxes of what you ate, what you drank, whatever, and put your money into the box and everything is, is very codified in a certain way. Things are done, have been done the same way for decades and really centuries. And they're so, they're so proud of their club. I mean, it's such an important mm. part of their culture and their lives. It's not just about eating. It's really much more than that. 
Dave Seminara, thanks for uh, sharing your, your discoveries and sharing lots of discoveries in your book, Bed Breakfast and Drunken Threats. Let's just close it out with your favorite food memory when you were in Basque Country. Uh, what, what do you recall that makes you almost want to travel all the way back there to eat it again? I love just coming in and out of uh, the 31 de Agosto uh, Street in San Sebastian, coming in and out of the Pincho Bars, and I love ordering the gambas, which are the spicy mm. shrimp that they, they serve it to you on a, on a thinly sliced baguette mm. with a little bit of sort of garlic and tomato sauce, and it's a little bit spicy, and you have it with some nice white wine. And anywhere in Spain, we have the tapas bars, and in uh, Basque Country, the tapas bars are called pinchos, right? That's correct, pincho bars. And one thing I'll leave you with, Rick, on this thought is on Thursday nights in San Sebastian, in the Gross neighborhood, which is just to the east of the old town on mm-hmm. Thursday nights, it's two euro pincho night. Most of the pincho bars in this neighborhood will give you a glass of wine or a beer for two euros or any pincho you like for two euros. And it's an amazing Thursday night out in San Sebastian. Thursday night. In Basque Country with Dave Seminara. Dave, thanks so much, and best wishes. Happy travels. Thank you very much, Rick. You'll find more about the Basque Country and Dave Seminara in this week's show notes at ricksteves.com slash radio. We'll hear what questions and ideas our listeners have for traveling in Europe in just a bit at 877-333-RICK. Up next, we look at what makes Prague such a delightful mix of the old world and the new. It's Travel with Rick Steves. One of the first things you'll notice in Prague is a very real creative edge that seems to permeate the city. You'll notice it in its variety of impressive architecture, its creative art scene, and a daring sense of style that teases and plays with your perceptions and often comes with an interesting backstory. Joining us now are Prague-based tour guide Katerina Svobodova and the co-author of the Rick Steves Eastern Europe Guidebook, Cameron Hewitt. Cameron and Katerina, thanks for joining us. Thank you for your invitation. Yeah, thanks for having us. Hey, Cameron, we're dedicating an entire interview to the art and design of Prague in the Czech Republic. Why Prague and and not the neighboring capitals like Budapest or Bucharest or or Belgrade? Uh, I think Prague has a really unique sense of style and a sense of architecture, a sense of design. Uh, It's a very artistic culture, the Czech culture. I think it helps that the city of Prague was not destroyed by the bombs of World War II like so many of the other cities in that area. So a lot of that heritage is better preserved, I think, than in a lot of places. And I also just think the Czech spirit is very, it's very playful, it's very creative, it's very irreverent and sometimes subversive. And I think that lends itself to a really uh, a fun sense of style in the Czech Republic. Katerina, when I think of the Czech people, I think of a passion for freedom. And I remember traveling in the Czech Republic before people could travel during communist times. And still there was this, this joy of other cultures. If they couldn't travel, they could bring the, the wonders of the world right into Prague. You had beautiful tea houses, for instance... There's the um, love of this absurd... What's the... The Blacklight Theater. Blacklight Theater Mm -hmm. and so on. Well, yeah, the truth is that because of all the fact that we could not really express freely, you know, uh, easily, then, of course, you would find the alternative ways how you would do it. And even such things happened, like whenever there was somebody with, uh, I would say, much more creative mind who was, of course, oppressed by the system. Luckily, there were ways how we could always get him working, but like uh, underneath, you know, the surface. So during that time when there was no freedom, yet people still expressed themselves in a free way with creativity, what were some avenues for expressing themselves? 
Well, because you could not do it, of course, uh, on the massive level, it, mm-hmm. uh, that was impossible. So then they were working more or less just at home for a lot of uh, underground, and that's developed. Also in the Black Lives era, it could be imprinted very nicely, in a way, what came to be so unique in, in um, the theater culture. Uh, the same with alternative forms of culture at that time. Uh, the same with poetry, with literature. That time, it is even hard to imagine, maybe for people who never went through such a period, that you really could not listen, read whom you liked, you know, but then you you had to find the ways how to go around that. Cameron, as you studied Prague in in the research, how did you see this spirit of the Czech people um, expressing itself? I do think there's a a certain creative spirit. The thing that Katka just mentioned, Blacklight Theater is a good example of that. This was a way that Czech people, especially under communism starting in the 1960s, could express somewhat controversial ideas, but it was a very unusual way of doing it. It was a, It's a, a form of theater that has a lot of illusion. They use a lot of actual black lights, um, so you can have a lot of illusions with that. Think of it as sort of a really low-rent uh, Cirque du Soleil almost. It's sort of a, a really fun, absurd show that really gets your creative juices flowing. And it was a way to kind of, in a subtle way, say bad things about the regime without coming out and saying them. So you had plausible deniability. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah. Our guides to the art and architecture of Prague on Travel with Rick Steves are hometown guide Katerina Svobodova and Cameron Hewitt, who researches and co-authors Rick Steves' guidebooks to Eastern Europe. Cameron, when I think of Prague, I think of Art Nouveau. How is it that Prague has such great Art Nouveau? It's really one of the best cities in Europe, I think, for Art Nouveau, and that's a good question. Uh, um, I'm not sure what the historical reason is, but the fact is you see artifacts, beautiful buildings. It's just a, a style that was really embraced when Czechoslovakia was first its own independent country in the years after World War I. So probably a lot of the national pride shows itself in Art Nouveau structures. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. One of the best examples is the Municipal House, is this beautiful concert hall, and it was built around that time in this gorgeous, slinky kind of eye-catching Art Nouveau style, and it was a celebration of Czechoslovak culture and unity and real pride in that culture in a corner of the world where for so long those people were part of a larger kind of German empire, and now here's a chance for the Czechs to show off their own culture. Katrina, yeah. if I'm visiting Prague and you want to show me a good example of the Art Nouveau, where would we go? I mean, Cameron said that the best example, but the truth is that there is also another aspect of that very building and how important it is for the Czech people. Because two things happened there. Maybe even first thing, what's important about it, it's that it was built for the Czech people by the Czech people. Because it was just about that early 20th century when still our culture was more or less divided into the German speaking and the Czech speaking. This was one of the first big culture venues, concert venues built for us, for the Czech people, that we would go and enjoy the Czech music. Mm. That was one aspect of it then. And then the second is that in 1918, that was that big year when our free country uh, was established. And that very uh, document was actually signed inside of that building. That's why we call the square around it Republic Square, because our republic emerged. But then you would find also other great examples not far away from the municipal house. It will be on the Wenceslas Square, for example. Mm -hmm. Just now they are working on renovation of one of the most beautiful examples there, and that is Grand Hotel Europa. And then the further you continue in this new town of Prague, we call it, just towards the river. That's where we have four other great examples, shiny once again. Great architecture, and at the same time, so convenient for us travelers, a great artist, Muka. Cameron, how do you enjoy Muka? Alphonse Mucha, this great Czech Art Nouveau artist, worked at the same time period, early 20th century. And and speaking of Czech patriots, uh, one of his commissions early in his career, he actually designed stamps and currency for the new country of Czechoslovakia. Here's a homegrown Czech artist who's actually creating the look of his his brand new country. Now, his passion was for sort of Czech pride, it seems like. And even deeper than that, the very... Kind of primal... uh, Primal sort of Slavic... 
soul. He was absolutely a Czech patriot. I mean, the funny thing is he got his start in Paris painting posters for theater uh, productions. But when Czechoslovakia became a country, he came home and really started to trumpet not just Czech pride, but as you said, the Slavic pride of the Slavic people. And there's a Muka Museum. Right in the new town, right near Wenceslas Square, you can see uh, the evolution of his early works. Katarina, when we're walking through Prague, we can see a lot of other layers of the city's architecture beyond Art Nouveau, beyond Baroque. What are some other 20th century architectural icons that we'd see, styles? Well, I would say that what is the most unique, what you would find and what you would not find in other countries very much, would be cubism. A cubist because building. Czech cubism, it's it's pretty unique. I mean, mm-hmm. in in paintings, it's not as so because then mm-hmm. there may be more famous people in other parts of Europe uh, as painters. But then for us, it was also one of those uh, influences maybe coming, you know, from the western part of uh, Europe, and we implemented it even into architecture. And we have couple of great examples. In the city center, only one, mm-hmm. and that would be the, we call it in Czech, Dům u Černé Matky Boží, that's the Black Madonna House, where now even the museum of the Czech cubism is. Hmm. And what is so interesting to compare this very building with the municipal house, because the difference in time of this and that building is only two years, but the difference in its look, it's Enormous. It's you have the municipal house 1912, and then you have this, the house at the at the Black Madonna 1914, and that is like wow, you know, that's really a big. So it's about maybe 300 meters away and two yeah. years apart, and yeah. as different as uh, old and new. Cameron, when you think about a cubist building, I mean, I can think of a cubist painting. Right, that's a, a style that we think of in terms of art. I think it's basically unique to the Czech Republic that they have their own architectural style of Czech cubism, and it's basically from the outside. It's very angular. It's not as as wild and kind of semi-abstract as the painted version of cubism. It's just really looking a lot at angles and squares, and it's it's a little bit like a variation on Art Deco, but sort of amped up. At the one that Katka has mentioned, the House of the Black Madonna, they have a beautiful grand cafe where a traveler can go and sit and enjoy being inside this beautiful uh, masterpiece of Czech cubism. And the fun thing is even desserts on the menu that would normally be served in circular form are served in square form (laughs) because this is the Czech uh, cubist cafe. So the furniture, the menu, the dishes, all cubist. We've got a little surprise dessert of our own from Prague in a few minutes. Right now on Travel with Rick Steves, our guides to the bohemian color of Prague are Cameron Hewitt, he frequently travels to Eastern Europe while researching the Rick Steves guidebook series and Katarina Svobodova, who lives in Prague and is a leading tour guide in that city. Katarina, when we think about contemporary Czech art, is there a scene that a traveler can easily visit to know what's happening today with Czech design? Yes, yes. We have um, actually great museums open just recently, meaning 10 years back or just a couple of years back, and this would be I would probably first go to the docks in the district number seven of Prague because this is a huge uh, also venue. You know, many of the Czech um, artists uh, represented this way. Where is that exactly? The uh, it's docks? in Holeshov. It's a, that's a district number seven of uh-huh. Prague, uh, the street, I think, Osadny or so. So docks, uh, definitely. Or then Meat Factory. That's another very interesting venue in district number five of Prague in Smichov where, again, we have the most contemporary, not just after the war, it's like even more after the communist period Mm -hmm. um, artists um, on exhibit right now. And there would have been a lot of pent-up spirit to create, and then as soon as freedom comes, wow. Yeah, then it just bursts out. Katarina and Cameron, let's just finish off with a a quick uh, tip for travelers. Uh, First of all, Katarina, if somebody's going to buy a souvenir that would sort of reflect the fun that the Czech people have with design and art, what would be a good souvenir? 
Well, then I definitely must talk about our Czech cut crystal because this has been around for some time. And it is a great little thing what you can bring home. You don't have to buy a chandelier, even though you can. But then the cut crystal in a way also how, of course, we have a traditional way, traditional design, what's kind mm-hmm. of a star design, what is cut handmade still uh, on a piece of glass. But then also some people do prefer more a little bit more modern kind of style. So then they have the infusion colors in, in the glass. And we have a couple of such good stores where you can buy these. One would be the blue for the modern type of glass. And then mm-hmm. if more traditional, you would probably go either to Moser, either to the other like Airpet stores where we have a great uh, selection of all these traditional And the tourists would see those the, on the streets in the oh, old yes. center of the mm-hmm. town. Is that what we would think of as bohemian crystal? Yes, exactly. That's how bohemian you would, yes. Crystal. you, you okay. would. Yeah. And Cameron, mm-hmm. if there's one single spot where we can feel the sort of unique artistic style of the Czech uh, culture, where would you take us? Uh, my favorite thing to do in Prague, and as a tour guide in Prague, I've also recommended this to my tour members, just go get lost in some of the back streets. There's an area that's that's currently the Jewish quarter, Josefov, uh, but also has some really striking Art Nouveau architecture. I love to just get lost in back streets, not go looking for any particular landmark, but just uh, sort of let yourself be lost in a wash in the beautiful, uh, glorious architecture of Prague. It's It's amazing when you know all the famous sites of Prague, how many not famous but still very beautiful places you can find if you if you just let yourself explore. As you wander the streets of Prague, admiring the scene all around you, you're likely to hear some interesting street performers who add a great soundtrack to the city. One of my favorites call themselves the Prague Castle Orchestra, and you're likely to find them most any day performing near the entrance to the big castle at the top of the hill. But how do you get a whole orchestra to perform on the street? Well, that's part of the Czech sense of humor, since there's only three in the group. They call themselves the world's smallest orchestra. I've invited the entire Prague Castle Orchestra right here into our studio to bring us a taste of the folk and classical melodies that are so dear to the hearts of the Czechs. And while music is a universal language, Katerina will serve as our translator. Uh, Katerina, can you introduce each of the musicians and, and their instrument, please? Okay, so we have here Jaroslav Kovar, he plays the bass. Then we have Jan Kocurek, he plays the accordion. And then Josef Kocurek, he plays the flute. What would be a, a fun example of some Czech folk music that we might hear? Well, I would say that polka type, all Slavic people have a little bit of this type of music in their blood. What's a good Polka, polka that we might hear in the Czech okay. Republic. Českou polku je to těžké samozřejmě vybrat, protože jich je velká spousta, ale my bychom zahráli polku. Kdyby smila má panenko sto ovec. <laughs> he was saying that it is pretty difficult to find one because we have so many great ones and they like to play them a lot. But he was thinking that the best he will now play if you, my girl, would have 100 sheep. If you, my girl, would have 100 sheep. Jedná se o to, že je to píseň slibovací, neboli promise song. Aha, that is promise song. You know, it's like if oh, something. This, oh. is, this is a promise. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's hear. Kdybys měla má panenko sto ovec, a já jenom mezaklubučky mý ovec, jo, jalovec, nebudeš má, není možná. 
ani ty to má, pane Kopa, nebudeš má, není možná. Ani ty to má, pane Kopa, hledá, kdybys měla má, pane Kostodvoru. A já jenom rozdrvanou storolele Storvoru, nebudeš má, není možná. Ani ty to má, pane Kopa, hledá, nebudeš má, aha, není možná. Ani ty to má, pane Kopa, hledá. So that was our folk. Now, when we're in the Czech Republic, we have a lot of historical heritage, and of course, the Habsburgs were a big deal, and the Habsburgs were famous patrons of the arts. What is a classical piece that the band likes to play that recalls the joy of music in the Habsburg Empire? I think it will be something related to Mozart, most probably. Yeah. What would Joseph like to play? Tak, poněvač opravdu Habsburgové, to je Rakousko, a kdysi dávno Bohemia, česká kotlina, takže v podstatě Mozart vyhovuje a Marcia a la Turka, turecký pochod, Turkish Marsh. Uh, I think I heard Turkish Marsh. Turkish Marsh, they like to play a lot because it's very, you know, like full of energy. Um, Let's hear the Turkish Marsh by Mozart. <laughs> Czechs love their composers. Uh, Katerina, what are the the top two or three Czech composers who we might uh, know? 19th century, it's pretty important because of the national revival, the movements, and mm-hmm. so what we could see also in the literature, in arts, and in the music quite a lot. So I would surely mention the two main, and that is Bedřich Smetana and Antonín Dvořák. I know when people are traveling around the Czech Republic, they're going to hear uh, de Moldau, the Moldau. That's the name of the river, right? Oh, you're just talking about this in German, and that's exactly what we don't like. Because <laughs> you call it the Voltava. Because we do call it Voltava, but we understand that it is much more known as Moldau because of that language, you know, we needed now, to use and all that. So, like, essentially, your national anthem is known as the Moldau, which is the German word, which <laughs> is sort of against the whole idea. Exactly. It's the Voltava, the river. That's the irony of it, yeah. <laughs> yes. Can we ask the Prague Castle Orchestra to play uh, a bit of de Moldau by Biedrich Smetana.
Jan, Yaroslav, Josef, the Prague Castle Orchestra, thank you so much. It was a beautiful opportunity to celebrate your culture and your music. Děkuji. Prosím. You'll find a video of the Prague Castle Orchestra with this week's show notes at ricksteves.com slash radio. Up next, let's hear about your own plans for a European getaway. We're at 877-333-7425 or by email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Every so often, we make time on Travel with Rick Steves to open up the phones to hear about your travel plans and to get reports from your adventures that might just inspire other listeners to strike out on their own. Where are you thinking of going? 877-333-RICK. That's our phone number. Cheryl's calling in from Portland, Oregon. Cheryl, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Thanks for taking my call. Yeah. So my question is, uh, my husband and I have a trip planned to Italy. We're flying into Rome and out of Venice. And I thought it'd be a great idea to take a side trip to Croatia, split. So I am looking for alternative modes of travel or the best way to go from possibly Rome to split and then back into Italy. So split is just across the Adriatic Sea from Italy on the coast of Croatia. And, you know... Anytime I'm traveling in Europe, I'm always impressed by how convenient and how affordable flights are. And from Rome, you've got many flights a day that go to Split, which is the major city on the coast of Croatia. And it takes, so oh, about 75 minutes to fly from Rome to Split. And I think it'll cost you a couple hundred bucks each way. So, uh, uh-huh. you know, if you want to save a lot of time and if you can afford a, a little extra money, uh, you can do it by air. Actually, when all the dust settles, it's probably cheaper to fly than to go overland anyways because you just do it in about an hour. Yes. uh, But I would question, when you think of how much there is in Rome, if you just have two days, if you really want to go to split. Are you going to Venice on your trip? Uh, Yes, we are. We're finishing the trip in Venice. Because from Venice, it's just a short trip across the bay to Rovine. And Rovine is uh, just an amazing town. It's my favorite stop between Venice and Dubrovnik. And Rovine's kind of a, sort of a, a mini Venice in a certain way. But you could get okay. there from Venice very easily. It's just a couple hours drive or there's even boat connections. Oh, okay. So before committing yourself to a, a side trip from Rome to Split, assuming you're going to Venice, uh, get online and, and see about the connections from Venice to Rovine. Okay. I hadn't considered that going oh, to Venice. Yeah, I just, I just love Rovine. Split's great. But Rovine is really romantic, uh, and it gives you sort of the best of both worlds. It's got that wonderful Venetian allure. It's Croatian, and uh, it's less crowded for sure than than Venice and uh, a lot less expensive. So check that out and have a good time, Cheryl. Okay, thank you so much. I love the suggestion. Thanks for your call. Bye. Kay's calling in from Washington, D.C. Hi, Kay. Hi, Rick. I just was going to share what the kind of thing my husband and I do when we go to Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, we like old movies. We read a lot. So we go to a city and we stay there for a week and we will try to find places that were in movies we loved or in books we read. Mm-hmm. And we do it on our own. A lot of times there will be a tour. One of the ones we did was uh, the old movie, The Third Man with Orson Welles. Oh, yeah. And, that was uh, about uh, in, Vienna just after World War II when it was all bombed out and full of spies, huh? Right, right. So on our own, we found, you know, the place where the Baron and his little dog and where the apartment was. Uh, 
and it sort of makes it a treasure hunt, and it makes you get out. It makes you use public transportation. It makes you get lost, which Mm. is great fun. I believe there's a cinema that still plays that movie, Every week, the Berg Kino, right on the on the Ringstrasse. I, oh, wow. In a case like that, when you have a movie that has a cult following, if you go to the city, oftentimes there's a quirky museum dedicated just to that movie. And in the case of Vienna, uh, Third Man fans should know that there's a private museum, the Third Man Museum, and it's uh, only open Saturday afternoons, and it's run by a couple of uh, wonderful guides that I've worked with, Gerhard and Karen. And, uh, you know, it's just their passion. And you could go there and get a private tour of all of the artifacts from the third man by Gerhard himself. Well, we missed that. We went a few years ago, and we were just amazed at how much we could find that related to it. What's another city uh, where you've tracked your love of a movie or a book? Back when Stieg Larsson was so big with Dragon Tattoo, we found another Swedish detective. Every European country has wonderful detectives. That's a one way to get into it. It was Henning Mankell was the writer, and his detective is Kurt Volander. And we thought we were being so smart. We were going to Istad, which is this tiny little town on the southeastern coast of Sweden. And we thought, oh, we're finding something nobody else knows because they're doing Stieg Larsson. So we went to Malmö to get a train to go to Istad. And when the train pulled in, emblazoned on the side was the Kurt Volander Express. Oh, no. So we <laughs> figured out we're not the only ones You weren't the and first turns, people, no? No. It turns out that in Europe, they've done a lot of television shows with his work. Mm, so yeah. has a huge, huge fan. But we did. We went there and we found his apartment by ourselves. We found... Mm-hmm the pizza parlor where he ate the cake with the blue icing. And in the town for tourists, if you want a tour, they give you a tour on the local volunteer fire department's fire truck. They just load it up with people and they drive around and show you all the scenes from various parts of the book. In fact, it's become a cottage industry in a lot of places, whether it's Harry Potter or Poldark or Downton Abbey. If you've got a favorite, you can certainly tie it in with your sightseeing plans, can't you? Oh, absolutely. And even if you don't do what we did and look for places, I know in um, Venice, if you've read Donna Leone's Commissario Brunetti books, you've been in the coffee shop with him over and over. So it just feels natural to be doing it instead of something that's awkward or you're not quite sure. Well, good for you. Now, if you take that thought further, there's so many ways that you can prepare for your trip very enjoyably by... uh, shaping your recreational movie going and reading and studying and whatever to where you're going to be traveling. Exactly. Hey, Kay, thanks for the call. Thank you so much, Rick. Hey, happy travels. You too. Bye-bye. We're hearing from you, our listeners, with your travel plans and stories about Europe right now on Travel with Rick Steves. By the way, if you'd like to join us as a caller on the show for future open phone segments or to talk with one of our guests, go to our website and let us know who you are there's a place to send us your email address so that we can notify you of our next recording sessions and topics. It's at ricksteves.com slash radio. Holger emails us from Jefferson, Oregon, and Holger writes, I want to see and walk across the longest footbridge in Europe, located near Zermatt in Switzerland. It's about 1,600 feet long. I saw a short clip of it on the news recently. How do I get there? 
Hey, Holger, that's so exciting these days. All over Europe, you've got these towering footbridges that are they're just for pedestrians, and they're, they're sort of done for the scenery and, and for tourism and for hikers. And they are not rope bridges, but they're metal cable bridges. And uh, they're designed uh, as a tourist attraction. And they're very, very solid. I've taken my groups over on a number of times in different places around Europe, and people are very nervous. But the locals tell me you could drive a a truck over that thing and not be endangered at all. They are very strong. They're very safe. They've got, you know, mesh sidewalls and banisters that you can hold onto as you go. And you walk over this dangling footbridge 100 yards off of the valley floor. Uh, It is a thrill. Now, the longest one is in Switzerland near Zermatt. People, they always say the footbridge at Zermatt, but it's really, it takes a six or seven hour hike to get there from Zermatt. You can get as close as a town called Randa, R-A-N-D-A, and then it's a two hour hike from there, I understand. But that footbridge in southern Switzerland is clearly the longest in Europe right now. Much easier to get to is the one in the Tyrol in Austria, just outside of a town called Reutte, R-E-U-T-T-E. And when you're in southern Germany and Bavaria visiting the the castles of Mad King Ludwig at Neuschwanstein, it's just a half an hour drive south over the border into Austria, again, just outside of Reutte. And there you can hike for 15 minutes above the parking lot, and then you get onto this uh, dangling footbridge and you go across the valley walking from one hill to the other as you're visiting these ruined castles. It's quite a beautiful experience. So, Holger, wherever you travel in Europe, keep an eye open for those, uh, those new metal cable footbridges. Steve's on the phone in San Antonio, Texas. Steve, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Well, you want to hear a funny story? I love funny stories if it's about a travel experience you had. <laughs> it was an experience. So last September, my wife and I were taking a train from Budapest to Prague, and the way we booked our train tickets, we ended up going to Vienna. We had about a one-hour layover at the train station, so we checked our backpacks, and we jumped on the metro or the subway or whatever it is to run into the city. And as soon as we stepped onto the train... And we were standing there, and it was completely packed. I felt something kind of move on my rear end. And I'm standing there facing my wife, and I reached back and patted my butt where my wallet normally is, and there was nothing there. Mm. And there should have been something there, and I realized, uh uh-oh. So I spun around real fast, and standing right in front of me are these two little girls, probably 18 to 20 years old, not even five feet tall, gals and they both had great big heavy coats draped over their arms and i remember reading about how these people go around with all these coats and things over their arms so i looked at them and they're just kind of looking at me with these blank stares on their faces and i said you got my wallet you stole my wallet give me my wallet and i grabbed one of them and i just started screaming in her face because i knew it had to be one of these girls that stole my wallet (laughs) So I'm screaming and I'm yelling and all this, this, I mean, it's packed on this subway train and all these Viennese people are just looking at me wondering what's going on. So I'm screaming at this girl. I said, you give me back my wallet. I know you stole my wallet. Give me it. So all of a sudden, boom, on the floor, there's my wallet. She dropped the wallet from under her coat. So I pick it up and she looks at me. She says, you drop wallet. And I said, I did not drop my wallet. You <laughs> stole my wallet. I know you stole my wallet. You're <laughs> you're lucky I got my wallet back. I said, somebody call the police. Police, I, police, I. 
And I said, better luck next time, kid. <laughs> so this was on the subway going into Vienna from the train station. and Yeah, uh, but we, I can't remember which train station we were on, but we yeah. got on that thing. It was packed. At the next stop, those girls got off with everybody else, and a couple of these Viennese people walked up to me and patted me and said, hey, man, you did good. You're lucky. <laughs> well, they chose. And my heart was beating, <laughs> and, they, and they said, oh, and please don't feel bad about Vienna and all the Viennese. We're not all like this or something yeah. like that. Yeah. So we, took, we went down two more train stops, got off, walked around, saw a bunch of big buildings, a real pretty garden. We were so excited, and our hearts were pumping so much. And my wife was standing there, didn't know what in the world was going on. She's thinking, man, I wish I'd had my video camera. Those, <laughs> girls, those girls chose the wrong Texan to uh, to mess with, I think. Don't mess with Texas, I guess. No way, not on the subway was, in Vienna or anywhere. I was lucky because I had two driver's licenses in there, a couple of credit cards, wow. not much cash. Right. But I had not been following your advice to wear that little body wrap thing. And we both had them. We yeah. both had My wife was wearing hers, but... I had a pocket that the rear pocket had a Velcro cover on it, and I never felt that Velcro go, you know, that sound. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, I sure felt something move in my rear end. Yeah, well, those, and, those, uh, those little street thieves, you know, they probably targeted you and your wife uh, well before you realized it, and they were just there ready to pounce when they had a moment. And uh, I would just always remind people that the street thieves in Europe target Americans because uh, we're the ones likely to have money and credit cards and everything in our wallets, and we don't uh, have it zipped away, so... That's a good lesson, and you're lucky you got it back, and good for you for taking a, a little break in a train connection to get downtown and, and see a, a different city that wasn't even on your original itinerary. Wasn't even on the list. Steve, just from a practical point of view, you were able to leave your luggage at a locker at the train station and be unencumbered by that as you used the public transportation, the subway, to zip downtown in just an hour that you had free time between trains and actually see something in Vienna. Exactly, exactly. And it's a reminder that if you have just a couple of hours of downtime between trains, you can zip downtown and watch your wallet and uh, check out a new city. Hey, thanks for calling and reporting, and I bet you have uh, warned people to be on guard when they're on the subways, uh, distracted by all the excitement around them to realize they may be targeted by a petty purse snatcher or pickpocket. That's right, and we've entertained a lot of people with the story, too. Yeah, that's good. All right. Hey, thanks, Steve. Happy travels. Thanks, Rick. Bye-bye. Bye now. We're looking at your travel plans for Europe this year on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-7425. Elliot's calling in from Wisner in Nebraska. Elliot, thanks for your call. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah. Uh, What thoughts are you having uh, about our travels? Well, it's not my thought so much as my uh, grandmother's thoughts. um, She'd like to visit Scotland because that's where her ancestors came from originally. Mm Mm-hmm. She's getting on in years, and, well, her her joints aren't as what they used to be. And from my experience going around the British Isles myself, I know that some of those walkways can be quite uh, troublesome on the old joints. I was wondering if there were any sites in Scotland that might be a bit easier on uh, on those who are getting on in age. Uh, You know, I cannot think of any, unfortunately. I would say the trick would be to have a guide with a car or at least, you know, have a car yourself because with a car, you can uh, greatly decrease the uh, physical demands on an older traveler that you're sharing the experience with. Local guides have cars that have special permission to drive where cars are generally not allowed. 
And uh, that can be very, very helpful when you've got grandma on board who's wanting to go back to, her, you know, the, the old country. But when I, when I think about Scotland, I think about lots of uh, towns put in spots where there's hills and, and a lot of demands on people physically. So uh, to be honest, it's pretty tough. I, I would say there's, the good news is you won't have the brutal heat and the brutal crowds that you'd find in much of the rest of Europe. So it's going to be comfortable in that regard. And if you have your own wheels, you know, if you have your own wheels, that would be nice. And as you're driving, you know, now that I think about it, one thing great about Scotland is just the breathtaking viewpoints. You can go all over the country and enjoy these amazing viewpoints and also monuments that remind you of of, um, stirring Scottish history, great battle sites, uh, great memorials, and so on. And those, uh, as I'm thinking through it right now, are all very... uh, very smartly designed for accessibility. So you go to the Battle of Culloden, uh, you can do that with with a loved one in a wheelchair, no problem at all. And remember, okay. there's no bad weather, just inappropriate clothing. All right, Elliot, thanks for your call. Yep, thank you. Take care, bye. Bye. And Randy's calling in from Rocky River in Ohio. Hi, Randy. Hi, Rick, how you doing? Doing great. Do you have any travel stories to share? Uh, you know what, not so much stories, but, you know, I was thinking about a question with all your experience with traveling throughout Europe, which country do you, would you say has like the funniest people to interact with, just hmm. sharing stories and hmm. just hearing a lot of funny things? That's a good question. Europe really enjoys the conviviality of the sort of a pub scene or the, the social scene, and it's often lubricated with a little bit of alcohol. So when you're in Scandinavia, you know, you have the Akavit, and when you're in Germany, you'll have your beer. You go to your pub in Ireland, and it's going to be Guinness-fueled. And if I think about the place with this best sense of humor, you know, the Dutch have a a real individual sense of humor, and and I'm not that comfortable with it. I I find the Dutch are a little bit, uh, there's an edge to their sense of humor that almost feels like it's at my expense. So I don't do well with the Dutch sense of humor. I find, of course, in Britain and Ireland, people love to talk and they entertain themselves with their gift of gab and the masters of the gift of gab are the Irish. So I think in Ireland, they're just, everybody is cracking jokes and I find my Irish friends can just entertain me forever. Another place where their sense of humor is wonderful is Italy. Italians just love to communicate. They seem to just have an energy for uh, cracking jokes and, and having fun. It's just fun loving in Italy. So I guess Italy and Ireland are my two favorite places. Awesome. Those are some of my favorite places, too. Uh, that's, that's awesome. Thank you very much. I'll, right. I'll remember that for the future. I think that's a very interesting topic, Randy. I've never had anybody ask me that, and uh, I'm going <laughs> to give it a little more thought because every country has its own sense of humor. I find uh, the Irish are just amazingly entertaining. It always comes with a lot of wit. And uh, the Scots are sort of the Celtic cousins of Irish, so you'd find a lot of the same sort of fun in the pubs in Scotland. Okay. All very right. cool. Very neat. All right. Have fun with the people you meet in Europe in your travels. Thank you very much. Have a good one. Take care. Bye. Bye. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Sarah McCormick, and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to Tim Underwood Productions in Bend, Oregon, for their help this week. You can listen again whenever you like and find out about our guests in the notes for each week's show. You'll find it all in the radio pages of ricksteves.com. We'll see you next week for more travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe, researching and writing guidebooks. 
His now classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. At Rick Steves Travel Store, you'll find guidebooks and phrasebooks for Croatia and Slovenia, and for Prague, Budapest, and Eastern Europe. There's more in the travel store at ricksteves.com.